Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Anne Chavone, Assistant Professor of Law at Duquesne University School of Law, and we will discuss her article, Canine Catch-22, The Impossible Dilemma of Using Police Dogs in Apprehension of Suspects, which will appear in the University of Pittsburgh Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I, your paper was was really interesting and, and also kind of, well, frankly, kind of like sad and troubling as well. Um, and, and I felt like in a lot of ways it was sort of bookended by two stories that you told about two particular police dogs in um, in Pittsburgh and what happened to them. And so, you know, I was wondering if you could start by just telling that story for listeners who may not have heard of it before. Sure. Uh, so in 2014, uh, we, Pittsburgh, you know, excuse me, the Pittsburgh police um, had an incident with a suspect who uh, was wanted on a number of, of charges, uh, sex offender charges and some others. And he was, uh, he holed up in, uh, in the basement of a house in, in the Lawrenceville neighborhood of the city. And the canine unit was called in to deal with him. And uh, he, was, he was hiding in the basement and the canine unit uh, brought their dog and, and announced that the dog was going to be released. And this was the canine uh, involved in this incident was, was named Rocco. And Rocco entered the, the property and went into the basement to locate the suspect, John Rush. And he uh, encountered the suspect and the suspect uh, had a knife and stabbed the dog, uh, also broke the dog's shoulder. And uh, he also, he was uh, eventually apprehended by the police after um, attacking uh, some of the officers as well. And the dog uh, was rushed to a local uh, emergency veterinarian. uh, And after several surgeries and two days, he succumbed to his injuries. Uh, So that made a big impression in in the city. And there was a large uh, mourning over the the life of the dog. uh, And it had, uh, the dog was given full uh, um, honors in his funeral, and there was a large procession of, of, of uh, uh, police officers and canines from around the country that came to the to the funeral. The suspect who had been apprehended alive uh, was tried, and he was sentenced on all of the charges that he had been, uh, you know. Uh, wanted prior to the incident, and then also on the, the uh, attacking the officers and, and the killing of the canine. And he was given up to 44 years in prison, which was a significant mm-hmm. amount of, of jail time. Um, but, the, you know, this incident kind of, you know, everybody was very upset about the dog, and there was a lot of <clears throat> grief over the, the life of the dog. And the, the st- state legislature of Pennsylvania passed a statute called Rocco's Law, which raised the, uh, the crime of killing a police dog from a third-degree felony to a second-degree felony mm-hmm. and um, gave it up to 10 years, uh, excuse me, the, um, uh, the, um, it was possible to get, uh, get up to 10 years in prison 
mm. for that for that mm. uh, action. Right. So sort of like a police dog equivalent of the increased penalties for hurting police officers. Exactly. And and while that couldn't be used against John Rush because, you know, his uh, incident was prior to the passage of that law, uh, the the sentencing judge did take into account the the actions against the dog um, when she uh, sentenced him. Okay. Okay. And then you told a second story, which was also very troubling, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. So two years almost to the day, uh, Pittsburgh had another police dog incident. Um, this one occurred with Port Authority police. So it was a different set. It was a different... Um, different, uh, authority, right? Uh, the city of Pittsburgh had the, was involved in the first incident. And then this was the Port Authority police mm-hmm. and two, uh, African-American men were drinking on Port Authority property, drinking alcohol. And the police had been called and, uh, the Port Authority tried to, police tried to, um, get them to kind of disperse and, uh, they were, a little belligerent and not really following direction. And the canine unit was again called in. Um, and this, the two African-American men were father and son and uh, Bruce Kelly senior and Bruce Kelly jr. And Bruce Kelly jr. Was uh, they were having more trouble getting him to cooperate with the police. And uh, they told him they were going to release the police dog. Uh, gave him the verbal warning as is required. And uh, Bruce Kelly Jr. said, if you release the dog and he used some expletives in his, in his statement, I'm going to kill it. And he point blank told the, told the police he would, he would kill the dog. Um, Prior, of course, just to back up slightly prior to, to bringing in the canine unit, they did try, the police did try to use tasers and some other, um, uh, tactics against him, but the taser didn't work. He had a heavy coat on. So again, they, they felt like the, the dog was the next step. Um, and even upon hearing this, you know, statement by Bruce Kelly Jr. that he was going to kill the dog, the do- dog was released and he stabbed it through the snout and killed it. Mm. Um, unfortunately, once the dog was stabbed, the police opened fire on Bruce Kelly Jr. Right. Shot him 12 times and he died instantly. Mm -hmm. So a very, well, in some ways similar, but in some ways very different outcome. And it sounds like a different context as well. Yes. And, uh, you know, part of the, the aftermath of the incident was, was that the, uh, again, the, the dog was given, um, you know, full law enforcement honors and the community was much more conflicted here. You know, certainly everybody mourned the loss of the dog, but um, the life of the person was lost in that, in some cases, in some instances. And the, um, the, you know, there were members of the community that were very um, concerned with the fact that the dog, the life of the dog seemed to be taking precedence over the life of the individual that, um, that was killed. Yeah. So it seems like we've got these difficult questions about sort of, what kind of values are implicated in these circumstances, but also, as you talk about in your paper, questions around when it's appropriate, if ever, and when it isn't appropriate to use dogs for this purpose. 
Yeah. So, you know, my, this, this, the idea for this paper kind of came about when I talked to my husband, he, um, he and I talked after the Rocco incident and which was the first, the first incident. And he said, you know, I would, if I were this guy, I would have defended myself too. And I was a little surprised by that. I kind of had the general reaction of all the, the other, um, you know, community members that how terrible it was that this dog was killed. And he said, you know, he, he actually did some Schutzen training, which is the obedience and, and defense, um, uh, protection work with, with dogs. He had worked with Rottweilers and with German shepherds mm-hmm. and he had put on the suit, right? The bite suit and taken bites from, from German shepherds and from Rottweilers. And he said, you mm. know, if I faced that, I would absolutely try to defend myself. Right. So that kind of got me thinking. And then when the second incident happened with Bruce Kelly Jr. and, and the canine Aaron, you know, I thought, oh, this is a, this is an exact example of what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I started thinking about, well, you know, how are people reacting to dogs? Is it normal for people to want to defend themselves or not? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I kind of looked into the science behind it and, and that the idea of, you know, fight or flight and whether, you know, people were, how they were reacting and whether this was a rational response. In the yeah. Case of the police dog. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if we could start this conversation by sort of give, giving a little bit more context for sort of how, how police departments use canine units and the kind of the, the different things that they do and how common is it for, for police departments to be using dogs in police work? So it's extremely common. Uh, there are no good estimates on the number of police dogs being used in the country at the moment, but um, in 2010, uh, there was a, an estimate of about, oh, it's wild guess estimate of about 50,000 in the country. Um, policing with dogs really didn't start uh, until the 20th century. And even the first half of the 20th century, it wasn't all that common. Uh, there mm. were maybe only 13 uh, different <clears throat> police departments that used police dogs at that time. Uh, but then in the late 50s, those numbers started going up. And um, into the, you know, the, the hundreds and thousands by the end of the 20th century, uh, in terms of the number of different units, um, police dog units, most, most police, most police forces have a canine unit at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. certainly all the major cities do. And they're used for a variety of things, you know, tracking and search and rescue. And of course, we we all know about the drug sniffing dogs as well, um, Mm -hmm. bomb sniffing dogs. And then, of course, one function is apprehension of suspects. Okay, so the apprehending suspects is only one thing among many different things then that that canine units are used by police officers uh, to do. How do they do that? Like, what kind of techniques do police officers use, or how are these dogs trained in the context of uh, apprehending suspects? So there are basically two general uh, training methods. There's what's called bite and hold, uh, which is probably the most common um, uh, type of training. And that occurs when a dog is released. It's trained to... um, seize the suspect by biting them. If they do not resist, the dog just holds on to them. Uh, If they do, and if they break the hold, the dog is trained to, of course, re-establish the bite. 
So um, this can become a little bit violent if a, if a uh, person is resisting arrest, they can receive multiple bites uh, from the dog um, and can, can, have, can have serious wounds. Now, if they just stay still, there's just a single bite, theoretically. Um, mm. The second training method is what's called bark and hold. And that occurs when a dog is uh, trained to simply find the suspect and bark and keep them in place. If the suspect attempts to flee or attempts to fight, that is when the dog is is trained to uh, uh, bite at that point. So it's theoretically maybe a little less violent, at least to start, although... um, it does give more agency to the dog, which uh, mm. some people think is maybe problematic as well, because the dog has to make the decision whether the person is trying to fight or flee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I was wondering when I was reading your your paper was, are there like variations on those techniques? And to the extent you know, is like one or the other like more difficult to train the dog to do? Bark and hold tends to be more, more difficult because it is granting agency to that dog. Uh, it's just a little bit more problematic in terms of making sure the dog is reacting properly under the circumstances. Um, bite and hold is um, more common uh, and tends to be a little bit easier. It puts the it leaves more of the agency in um, in the hands of the of the officer. That's that's um, Uh, handling the dog. Okay. Well, so then to the extent that the officer is making the initial decision, whether or not essentially to use the dog for the purpose of suspect apprehension, sort of what standard are officers expected to use in making that decision? And how is their decision evaluated? So under the law, um, you know, dogs are not considered deadly force. So they're in the, in the category of tasers and, you know, other non-deadly um, uh, tools used by the police. Um, so under the law, generally speaking, uh, courts are looking to a standard uh, that was first um, articulated in uh, Graham v. Connor which uh, allows the, it's often considered a, a subjective objective um, standard. So the police mm-hmm. have the ability to, you know, depending on the, the circumstances, the totality of the circumstances uh, in the officer's purview at the moment, uh, they can determine whether uh, that uh, source of force is appropriate at the time. So mm-hmm. it's looking through the eyes of the officer at the moment. Uh, and that, that is for most um, <clears throat> uh, non, uh, non-deadly weapons uh, at the, at the hand, or in the possession of, of the officers. Okay. Okay. So why are, why are police dogs considered, or the use of a police dog considered a form of non-deadly force? I mean, it sounds like, at least in some contexts, suspects do do die as a result of a dog attack. Yes, um, there are there are at least four known deaths at the hands of, of police dogs. There's probably more. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of uh, statistics on that, and and quite frankly, you know, 
uh, police departments don't like to publicize when dogs are involved in the death of a suspect. Um, they do, there is known, um, significant injury from, from police dogs. And, you know, ultimately other than firearms, you know, no other type of tool used by officers have been, has been deemed deadly weapons at this point by the, by the courts. Mm -hmm. Um, the model penal code suggests that anything that, you know, might pose a serious threat of physical harm, um, would, would, or death, uh, could qualify as deadly force. But at this point, the courts just Mm -hmm. have been unwilling, um, to call, uh, police dogs, uh, deadly force. It's very rare. The deaths are very rare, but the, but the injuries are, are not. So, um, you know, it's hard to say, but I think it's just the sense of, of wanting to, you know, give, um, you know, officers and law enforcement as, as much leeway as they can have. Right. So I'm not really a, a criminal person, but it seems like there's a weird lack of reciprocity there in the sense that, you know, the criminal suspect, it seems like, you know, a butter knife is <laughs> like <laughs> potentially deadly force, right? Right. No, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. No question about it. Um, it's It's the fact that, you know, the... The courts at this point, especially Supreme Court, um, you know, they really want to give uh, the officers the opportunity to um, to use the tools at their disposal. And in some ways, you know, you can look at this as if you have the option of using a dog versus a gun. Well, you know, the, the, the suspect does have a better chance of surviving the dog bite. So, you know, in that way, you know, maybe you do want the dog uh, over the over the gun. Right. So maybe there's an incentive thing like we do, like to the extent that there are kinds of force that police officers can choose that might be less deadly than others. We should encourage them to consider using less deadly rather than more deadly force. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the way you describe the standard for evaluating the police officer's decision sounds like it's largely kind of a holistic standard, like kind of look at all the circumstances. But, you know, in your research, have you noticed particular factors that courts tended to think were important or to consider? Or are there factors you think they should be considering? So some of the the factors that the courts have de- have decided um, kind of lend themselves to um, excessive force and in in dog bite in police dog bite cases, um, and the most of these cases are brought under under Section 1983 to, uh, 42 USC 1983. Uh, so they're um, excessive force cases under that statute, and for the most part, you know. Usually, courts are giving deference to the police um, in 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 these police dog bite cases. There are certain times when the courts seem to be more willing to entertain uh, the plaintiff's point of view, and that is um, particularly where um, injuries are very severe, mm. uh, where um, the police lose lose um, uh, command of the dog. Um, or mm. bites take a, a longer amount of time than is necessary to actually subdue the suspect, mm-hmm. um, where no warning is given. Usually uh, a warning is required before a police dog is um, is released 
under most uh, tactics, most police tactics, where those warnings are not given. Those those cases have sometimes resulted in verdicts for the plaintiff. Um, and, you know, just uh, generally where a crime is particularly minor, uh, you know, so uh, shoplifting, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, where a dog was, was used in that circumstance, um, you know, again, not always, but courts are, are more willing to um, entertain uh, the plaintiff's claims. Right, right. So how do courts tend to react when the suspects do fight back against a dog attack? Uh, and sort of, you talk about the likely reaction or the potential reactions of a suspect, you know, how should that affect the way courts evaluate that situation? So the problem, and and this is really, in my view, the problem with this subjective objective um, approach is that it's completely in the eyes of the officer at the time. And the officer doesn't really need to take into account the circumstance surrounding that, um, uh, that suspect. So for instance, with Bruce Kelly Jr., uh, he was, the police were called because he and his father were drinking alcohol on the process, on the, on the, um, on the property of the Port Authority. And, you know, there was really no sense of the fact that the that releasing the dog on someone who is inebriated might result in a different reaction uh, mm-hmm. than than someone who's with you know has all their faculties. Um, same thing with with mental health issues. Uh, John Rush it was known to the police and known to have um, significant mental health issues. Um, Bruce Kelly Jr. also had mental health issues. So when when dogs are released on these kinds of suspects, um, you know, the, the the officer does not need under the law to take into account any of that. Um, and to me, that seems short sighted and and somewhat unfair um, to the suspects. You know, where where's information about that suspect is known, that should be incorporated in the totality of the circumstances. Certainly the fact that Bruce Kelly Jr. was drinking alcohol should have been considered in whether it was appropriate to release the dog um, under that circumstance. But, uh, you know, under the law at this point, it's it's not necessary. Right. So if I'm understanding correctly, then you're suggesting that in evaluating the officer's decision, and I guess maybe also in like training officers about when it is and isn't appropriate to use dogs, that they should be thinking holistically, not just from their own perspective, but also from the broader social perspective and from the perspective of the suspect. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm, you know, there, there are other scholars that have written, you know, more um, substantially about this in, in terms of, of, you know, deadly force, but um, you know, Viewing viewing the uh, the use of force against uh, against a suspect, you know, we should be thinking more about how to de-escalate situations than to escalate them. And and uh, tools like dogs can be very useful, but the officers need to understand that that's the using a dog is probably going to escalate the violence. Mm-hmm. And is there a way 
rather than escalating is there a way to de-escalate? You know, that should be in my, in my view, the first, um, you know, the first approach. Right. Well, it does seem that, you know, since unlike mechanical tools, you know, dogs do have agency and act of their own, of their own volition, even when they're well, well trained. Um, should that independent agency of the dog affect the training and analysis of when it's appropriate or not to use a dog in this context? I, certainly um, in some ways. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that the courts have wrestled with is, you know, when the dog has gone beyond its training, right. And, and continued to bite a, uh, a suspect uh, beyond what is necessary. Um, you know, in some cases the courts have said, okay, the plaintiff has a right in this circumstance. And in some cases uh, the courts have said, no, you know, the dog was trained properly. And just because the handler, you know, lost control for a period of time, you know, we're not going to, to, you know, kind of entertain the case. Um, so, you know, the fact that the dogs are not, uh, that they do have a mind of their own, um, is, is something that, that the officers and, and certainly, you know, canine officers understand and they're, they're, they're attached to their dogs and they live with their dogs. And so they know what their dogs are like. Um, but at the same time, you know, we can't, uh, we can't lose sight of the fact that they all have a mind of their own and, you know, and, and the, the officer is not always going to be in complete control. Yeah. So in your, in your paper, you also suggest the potential, uh, for a disparate impact on African-American subjects based on sort of history and current social context. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why you think that's a particular problem. So I I trace back a little bit of, of the use of dogs um, against African-Americans in particular um, in, in U S history. And of course started with um, the use of, of dogs against uh, runaway slaves. And then um, through the civil rights era, and uh, we, of course, have that iconic picture in Life magazine of, of the police dogs um, attacking protesters. And, um, and then again into the 1990s, uh, Los Angeles Police Department was uh, criticized heavily for um, the disparate impact of, of, of dog bites um, against uh, minorities, African-American and, and Latino populations. Um, so all of that, you know, kind of comes... Uh, historically to us. And, you know, the question, I don't, I don't try to answer the question of whether um, there is, uh, there is actual bias uh, in, in policing and and the use of dogs, although there have been studies that suggest there is, there, there is some bias. Um, There's also studies that suggest there isn't. Uh, However, um, I take it from the perspective of uh, the fact that there's this kind of known, um, uh, use of dogs um, against minorities, particularly African Americans, um, impacts the the reaction um, of African Americans to dogs and to police dogs in particular. You know, there's some some scientific research that suggests that this historic use of police of dogs against African Americans has has actually caused greater phobia of dogs mm. in, in certain. Um, in the African American community, and that that can impact the reaction of of a suspect who is of African American descent, who you know faces a dog, faces a police dog, um, in 
uh, you know, being faced with, with the, um, the use of a police dog against them. So, you know, it just seems like that is something that potentially also needs to be considered um, amongst the totality of the circumstances. Right. Okay. Well, in closing, Anne, I was wondering if you could kind of in a nutshell, let listeners know um, how you think your research informs or potentially informs the decisions that uh, police forces make about how to train officers in when it's appropriate or inappropriate to use dogs in suspect apprehension and how courts should go about evaluating the, um, the legitimacy or the um, appropriateness of those training standards. Well, I'm hoping um, I would like to see that this paper uh, kind of open people's eyes a little bit to the need to collect a little more data on, on uh, police dogs and how police dogs are used uh, I would like, you know, law enforcement to understand that, you know, using the dog is going to escalate violence and that um, maybe in certain circumstances uh, we have to consider who that dog is being used against and, and in what circumstance and perhaps realizing that, you know, the dog isn't necessary and shouldn't be, you know, that first uh, uh you know, type of, of tool to use, right. That maybe there's a, a way to, to deescalate the circumstance rather than, than going to the dog too quickly. And I, I think that's really the, the, the point, um, you know, I recognize that, you know, do, police dogs are useful and are helpful in a lot of circumstances. I would say even the, the situation involving John Rush, uh, where he was holed up in a basement. I mean, that, that is a, a textbook example of when a dog is going to protect the life of an officer by going in first. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are other circumstances that, you know, the dog shouldn't be that the, even, even the second or third option um, because mm-hmm. of the situation involving um, the, the, the suspect. And I think taking, taking into account the, the, um, circumstances of the suspect um, should be, you know, more on the forefront of, the, of law enforcement at that point. Is that's that's where I'm I'm going with this, I guess. Great. Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your paper, Anne. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Training a dog is, in the minds of most people, a difficult and trying proposition. Actually, it is quite simple. Deal with your dog as though you were dealing with a child. You must be gentle with a sensitive dog and proportionately firmer with a rough and tough dog. The primary education of a dog consists of his learning the meaning of five words. They are heel, sit, Stay, down, and come. I repeat, heel, sit, stay, down, and come. These are easily taught if you use each word in association with a directive action, such as a gentle jerk on the leash to attract the dog's attention. 
For equipment, you need a slip collar, preferably a chain collar, and a six-foot leash. Let's first teach the dog to heel. To your dog, the single word heel must always mean walk by my left side. Place the dog on your left side. Double the end of your leash and hold it in your right hand about waist high and with your left hand grasp the leash approximately 14 inches lower. Adjust the leash so that it hangs below the dog's neck forming the letter U between your leg and the dog's. From this point on you must never keep a tight leash on the dog because a tight leash means choking and when the dog is choking he cannot possibly be thinking of what you are trying to teach him. Okay, we're set to move. When you start to walk, always step out with your left foot. This will soon become his guide for walking. First, call the dog's name to get his attention. Step out, say heel, and give a gentle jerk forward on the leash, all at the same time. I use the word jerk even though it seems like a harsh treatment because I want to avoid dragging the dog. The second the dog moves with you, put the slack back in the leash, walk back and forth, stop occasionally and repeat the same action. While walking, you will continue to give the heel commands and gentle jerks whenever the dog is not in position. The proper heel is accomplished when the dog's right leg is in line with your left leg, but not in direct contact with it. In a short time, the jerks will not be necessary. The word heel alone will suffice. Practice this exercise only for two or three days, devoting 10 to 15 minutes each day in a drill. When your dog has a general idea of the meaning of the word heel, you can teach him to sit. With the dog at the heel position, grasp the leash with your right hand about six inches from the collar. Place your left hand on the dog's hindquarters, then pull up with your right hand, press down with your left hand, and say, sit. Practice the heel and sit for a week for 10 to 15 minutes each day. He then is ready to be taught the stay command. 